probably heard about the recently released Harry Potter book. If you have uh, kiddos of reading age, or if you read the paper, or if you've been to the mall, or if you've stepped outside your house, you've probably heard about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire that came out, of course, last month, and everybody was scrambling to get one. Millions of copies were ordered over the internet before they were even uh, available. Thousands of parents broke the bedtime curfew, took their kids up to uh, bookstores at midnight, 12.01, where the book, uh, bookstores would open. Um, it's amazing how kids have such a fascination with this series, and I think by and large it's because all of us humans have a fascination with mystery. And this fascination that goes from kids all the way to the aged um, is a natural thing, I think, to have a curiosity for what we don't know and to have the desire to be baited with uh, mystery. C.S. Lewis once gave an explanation as perhaps as to why we have such a fascination for Harry Potter and the like. That is that he said that we essentially all have a longing for what is mysterious. We all have a longing for what is wonderful and what is not of this world. Of course, in our daily experience, we don't have that fulfillment. And so the world, the people of the world, will try to satisfy that void, that mysterious hunger, by filling it with things that the world provides. But unfortunately, of course, that is a futile experience. It never truly satisfies us to fill that void with what the world offers. Of course, on the other hand, as we look to the Bible and the truth that it gives, we find not only satisfaction for that void being filled, but also much more mystery. Even with the, the fulfilled void, there's still an element of mystery there that, uh, that gives us a desire to have more and more and to understand even more and more. I want us to look together, as David mentioned, as we continue in our series of 1 Peter. So open with me, would you, to 1 Peter chapter 4. And incidentally, if you don't have a Bible or uh, uh, don't normally bring one, we encourage you to bring one. If you don't have one, we've got some in the lobby that you can get a hold of. And if, you, if the donation is too much, just take it. We want you to have a Bible. Because we want you to be able to bring it, we want you to be able to read through it on a regular basis, and to see what the Lord God can do in your life as He uses His Word to transform you. Here on Sunday mornings, if you've been with us, we've been in the Word of God through a series in 1 Peter called Faith in Times Like These, where the Apostle Peter, a person, a man just like you and me, is living on the planet, struggling with sin in his own life, struggling knowing that the people to whom he is writing, struggling to live out faith in times like these. And so he has told them, given them some information to equip them and enable them to live out, to live the life they want to live in a culture that is dead set against the faith that they're trying to express. And if you've been with us, you remember where Peter's brought us so far. In the first three chapters, he's essentially said, look, I know that you're struggling. I know that you're going through things that are hard. But you need to remember that the trials that you're going through, though they are necessary, they are also temporary. And they won't be forever. Keep an eternal perspective. He says, fix your hope completely. Your hope completely needs to be fixed 
on the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning when He comes, the hope that you have, when the Lord Jesus at any minute could come and take His church to be with Him forever in heaven. And with that eternal perspective, he says, you need to focus on a couple of things. You need to focus on the Word of God because that's what you hang on to in the meantime. And he says you need to focus on the people of God, to love the things that are eternal, to love what lasts. And again, with that eternal perspective, he says, remember that you are an alien and a stranger on this planet. That if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is not your home permanently. You have a, a dual citizenship. Your citizenship is ultimately of heaven. So that your behavior living in this world needs to reflect your citizenship in the other world. And he talked about behavior toward the government, behavior toward uh, your job, behavior in your home. And he says that that behavior needs to match, like we looked at last week, that behavior needs to match an ever-ready message that you would have on your lips for anyone who would ask you why you live the way you live. And that message, as we looked at, is best epitomized in chapter 3, verse 18. We looked at last week, it talks about Christ dying for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. So with that in mind, now Peter begins chapter 4, verse 1, and makes a logical connection. As he says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Christ has suffered in the flesh, Peter says. Do you know why? I got a phone call this week from a solicitor um, wanting to me, wanting me and my family to come look at some land in Tyler, and we—I listened for a while to her spiel about this land in Tyler, and then I gave her my spiel. I said, "You've—I've uh, listened to you. Now you listen to me." And I asked her, "If you were to die today and stand before God, and He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Give me one good reason why I should let you into heaven." What would you say? And I could tell by her hesitation she was wondering how this fit in with Tyler. <laughs> and so I asked her, she says, you know what, you're the second person this week who's asked me that question. I said, well, I believe in a sovereign God. What would you say to God if he were to ask you that? She says, well, I, uh, I guess I'd say, you know, I've, I've tried to live a good life. I've, I've been a good person. I, I've loved my family. I've gone to church. And she laid out for me this whole repertoire of a good life. And I shared with her the truth that we looked at last week, that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And she says, oh yeah, I believe that. I believe that Christ died for my sins. And we talked a little longer, and I asked her the question again and again, she came right back to her repertoire of good deeds, totally apart from the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And I could tell that this was a seed I was planting. This was not a uh, something. This was not a, a moment of conversion for this lady. You know, if Jesus Christ, if 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 we could get to heaven simply by good deeds, why in the world did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? You know, if I could earn my way into heaven by living a good life, by letting the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, 
How in the world? Why in the world would Jesus Christ have died on the cross? Or as the New Testament asks at one point, or says at one point, if righteousness could be obtained by the law, in other words, by living according to the law, then Christ died for nothing. Instead, it's obtained by grace, through faith, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And Peter says that is the whole basis of the life in which you live. Therefore, he says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, is a logical outworking of that in your life then, therefore, is arm yourself with the same purpose. Arm yourself with the same purpose. You know, Christ didn't want to suffer. If you read through the Gospels, you see he came to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed to the Father. He says, Father, anything is possible for you. May this cup pass from me. Christ was looking for a way to do what he, know, what he knew he had to do to somehow atone for sin. But he says, if there's any way around it, anything is possible for you, let this pain, this cup pass from me. And then he said, but not my will but yours be done. See, even Jesus didn't want to go through pain. But he willingly went through the pain in order to be faithful to the will of his Father. And I want you to know something. If your purpose in life is to avoid pain, you're, you're going you're gonna to have to sin to do it. If your purpose in life is to avoid pain, you're going to have to sin to do it. And sin, of course, brings pain. So there's no way around it. You cannot avoid pain unless you try to compromise what is right. So if your hunt through life is to find the pleasant existence, if your purpose in life is to find that relationship that has no pain, whoop, oh, this hurts, uh, see you later, go try it again. Oh, uh, this hurts, go see you later, try it again. If your purpose in life is to come to a church that's perfect, good luck. You ain't going to find it. We are hypocrites all, myself included. And you are welcome to join the first church of the hypocrite here on Elm Street. There is no church that's perfect. There is no life. There is no existence that is painless. And yet, you know what? We will often guide the decisions in our lives based on what is the most painless decision that I can make. I've got this option. I've got this option. This option, boy, that's going to be hard. This option, ah, that looks easier. So we go this way. That is not the criteria for making decisions. If that was the criteria that Jesus Christ used to make a decision, then every human in the human race would go to hell. Because Jesus would not have died on the cross for our sins. Instead, what is the basis of making decisions in our life? It is not to avoid pain. The only imperative that we are given in this, in this entire uh, passage we're going to look at today, these first six verses, is right here in verse 1 where Peter commands us, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Not suffering for suffering's sake, but faithfulness, even if suffering is required to be faithful. So a principle that's difficult to swallow, but very important to have in our lives is this, that your best weapon against sin is your purpose to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering? Is your decision to suffer if that's what it takes to stay faithful? There's a Frank and Ernest cartoon that has Frank and Ernest standing in front of a priest. And Frank asks the priest, he says, how come opportunity knocks once, 
but temptation beats at my door every day. <laughs> Don't you feel like that sometimes? You know, you've got this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that you, that you blew, but yet temptation is beating at your door every day. You see, Peter realizes that we live in the real world, and he knows that temptation is a constant irritation in the life of one who desires to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, my friend, there's no way that your behavior is going to be right if, first of all, your attitude is not right, if your purpose is not right. So he says, here is your purpose. Let your purpose be to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering. And why should we do this? Because he says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That doesn't mean that we become perfect. What he's saying is it's impossible to choose to suffer for the sake of faithfulness and at the same time to choose to sin. You either choose one or the other. It's not both. That's why he goes on to say, so, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. It's one or the other. It's never both. It's one or the other. At any given moment, we are living for the lusts of men or we are living for the will of God. And notice those extremes, because those are the two different ends of the pendulum as they swing. The lusts of men, the desires of men, or the will of God. It's never both, but it's always one or the other. Several years ago, I heard a pretty grisly, true story about how an Eskimo took care, take, common, how an Eskimo takes care of predators that bother his animals. What he'll do is he'll go and he'll kill one of his own animals, he'll pull the blood, and he'll sharpen his knife to where it is as sharp as a razor, and he'll dip his knife in the blood and let it freeze, and he'll dip his knife in the blood and let it freeze. And he does it several times until he's got a nice, thick, frozen blood popsicle. And he takes that knife, that, that knife with the frozen blood, and he sticks it in the frozen ground and goes away. Because he knows that the natural instinct of that wolf, that predator, is to smell that blood and to come to it. And that's what he does. The wolf will come, will smell this fresh blood, will come find it and begin to lick it. And his instinct takes over and he licks more and more and faster and faster until he finally wears down that film of blood and gets to the blade itself. And then the wolf begins to taste fresh blood, his own. And yet he is so driven by his instinct to lap up that fresh blood that he won't stop even though it's his own tongue. I know this is probably a bad story right before lunch. <laughs> but it's a great illustration because what happens, what happens is the next morning the, the Eskimo comes and he finds this wolf laying in a pool of his own blood. And what a, what a perfect picture this is for us as we live for the lusts of men. Because we are living and we are feeding on the very thing that will take our own lives. And while it gives incredible satisfaction for the moment, we are completely oblivious to the fact that what we are lapping up is our own life. Till all of a sudden we fall exhausted in a pool of our own blood and we're dead. Peter's phrase when he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, he is saying you live the rest of the time of your life. 
the rest of your life, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And what a wonderful picture is given there that we have a choice. It doesn't matter what has happened in your past. The past is past. You have a choice about the future. No longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And it's got to be one to the other. There comes a time in your life where you have to say, I'm not perfect. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But I absolutely am going to quit living for that which is killing me. I'm going to quit living for that which sent Jesus Christ to the cross. That is a life totally devoted to sin. No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He speaks of the time past now. And he speaks of the time future. Notice how he elaborates in verse 3 on the time past. He said, Peter says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Sounds like your college days, doesn't it? You know, some of you may have been raised in church and have got a squeaky clean past, at least on the outside. Some of you, this verse very well could have been lifted from your police record. Some of you, very well, this verse could have been lifted from the diary of your life in a very literal sense. Sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And wherever you are on the spectrum, from squeaky clean and yet inside dirty, to outside dirty and inside dirty too, wherever you are on that spectrum, we have all licked the blade. We have all said yes to the lusts of men. And Peter is saying, the time past, there's plenty of time back there. Say, that's the time devoted to that stuff. There needs to be a point now to where you look forward and say, now the rest of my time, I'm no longer going to live for the less of men. One beautiful thing about the past is that it is always the past. Every day you wake up and what you did yesterday as a, as a failure is the past. And it never has to be who you are right now. And it certainly never has to be who you are in the future. I feel this is an extremely helpful viewpoint to take every morning when you wake up. That yesterday is gone. And today is a brand new day. And the Bible tells us that His mercies are new every morning. If you confess your sins, uh, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you confess your sins, your sins are totally forgiven. Totally forgiven. What a healthy perspective to have. The time past is sufficient for all that stuff. And I can't stress this to you enough. I know some of you are carrying incredible baggage. Most of it you've strapped to your shoulder yourself. Guilt from legitimate bad things you've done in your life. And you, st you continue to carry it. You know what? Jesus died on the cross for that. 
The whole reason Jesus died on the cross is not so you can continue to walk in the future carrying that burden. But that you, so you could understand that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he totally paid for everything that you did. Has that really sunk in to your mind? Everything that you did wrong in the past, Jesus Christ died for. Everything. Everything. And so from this moment on, you can realize that you can begin a brand new life with God. And you know what? It's not as if he puts up with us. It's not as if we're just dirt and he says, well, you know, by grace you get to come in. It's that, yes, he has taken us from where we were. And by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, not only are the sins erased, but he has also heaped on us the riches of Jesus. To where it's not only it's not only we started off with a negative balance, now we've got a zero balance, but we have a positive balance. That when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's not just seeing somebody he's putting up with. He sees somebody he, he loves, he sees somebody that that is as holy in his eyes as his own son Jesus. Now, if you want to get your self-esteem from something. Get it from what the Bible says as God's view of you. As righteous as Jesus Christ, if you will simply believe in him. Peter says the time past is sufficient for that. Let it go. I don't care if it was yesterday. I don't care if it was ten minutes ago. Let it go. No longer look to the past, but now look to the future. No longer for the lust of the men, but now for the will of God. Your best weapon, Peter says, against sin is your purpose to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering. Ravi Zacharias offers a very helpful quote, I feel. He says, If you were to look carefully at which pleasures bring you joy and which ones diminish it, I believe you would discover that every enduring pleasure is tied somehow to a relationship that also has a moral commitment. Where relationship is immoral pleasure comes unhinged and eventually... Let me read that again. Where relationship is immoral, pleasure becomes unhinged and eventually withers. In other words, he says, yeah, you get pleasure from doing the right thing, you get pleasure from doing the wrong thing, but which pleasure lasts? It's the one that is tied to morality. It is the one that is tied to a moral relationship. Of course, this works in the context of marriage, of a family, but ultimately it works in the context of a relationship with Jesus. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You know, every time in the past I've read that, many times in the past as I've read that, I've often thought, yeah, Jesus, get them. Until I realized that potentially he's also talking about me. Because it's very easy as a believer to uh, clean the outside of the cup, isn't it? Just look good on the outside. You know, just wear a clean shirt, get a good haircut, do your Christian deal, and on the outside everybody slaps your back and says, boy, what a, what a spiritual man. And on the inside, full of robbery and self-indulgence. I think it's for this very reason Peter is writing to Christians and he tells Christians the time past is sufficient for that. doesn't have to be your future. 
And not only does he say that we have to face temptation from within to do wrong, but now he looks outside in verse 4 and he says, and we also have to face that pressure from the world in which we live. Because he says in verse 4, in all this, meaning in all this carousal and, and drinking and sexuality, he says, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. What does dissipation mean? It's not a word we use a whole lot, is it? I looked up in the English dictionary, and it says that uh, it's the excessive pursuit of pleasure. And that's right. But the original language takes it a bit further. It's not only the excessive indulgence of pleasure, but it's the excessive indulgence of pleasure with no thought to the consequences. Basically, you're reckless with the decisions that you make. Peter says they're surprised that you don't run with them. In other words, we have a totally different mindset from the way the people in the world live. They look at us and they say, boy, what an absolute nut. You know, we're having a great time. We're doing all this stuff. Yeah, maybe some of it's not right, but who cares, man? We're having a great time. And they look at us and they think, what absolute idiots. This is great. And all they're doing is denying themselves for this aura of morality. Peter says, expect that. Their enjoyment in life is pleasure at all costs. And they can't understand why we don't have that same kind of a mindset. Jesus' baby brother Jude, in his short epistle, gave some great insight as to why these people malign us or speak against us in this way. He says, But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things, they are destroyed. Again, you get the picture of the wolf. Like unreasoning animals, by instinct, they go after the very things that destroy them. And the reason that they speak against us is because they're speaking against what they don't understand, what they can't understand. And so they malign us. So I would encourage you, as you're at the the break room tomorrow, and as you're getting coffee with some other folks, and the jokes begin about this and that that's uh, not appropriate to talk about, and you don't really take part in the conversation, perhaps even leave the room, and they, as you're walking out of the room, they kind of snicker and talk under their breath about, oh, there goes Dudley Do-Right. I can say that because my first name's Dudley, and I've heard that more than once. Oh, there goes Dudley Durant. Oh, there goes Goody Two-Shoes. You know? Or some of you ladies, uh, perhaps in high school, perhaps in college, in an atmosphere that you are called prude because you will not live your morality the way that everybody else lives their morality. How are you to take these kind of accusations? How are you to take this kind of maligning, as Peter says? Biblically, we're to take it as actually a compliment. Actually, we're to take it as an affirmation that we are living the way the Lord Jesus wants us to live. When Peter anticipates this kind of a response, he encourages us by telling us this. To keep an eternal perspective when others call you a prude. When others call you a prude. We don't like that word, do we? In fact, I was reading the Dallas Morning News this morning, and they've got an article in the lifestyle section about uh, gosh, what was it about? 
What was it about? It was about, oh, it was about that, uh, that sex in the city and about uh, this, this episode that they had lately that was just so raunchy. Everybody was saying, you know, even the, even the sailors blush, essentially. And they had the very word in there. They had the word prude. Even if you're a prude, and they went on to talk about it. Because that's exactly what our culture looks at, thinks of us, who say, this is right, this is wrong, because the Bible says it is. I say, well, you're prude. You know, the word prude actually came from, actually had a good origin. It originally came from a French word that talked about a lady who uh, had integrity, or a lady that was uh, a wise woman. It originally also came from a word that was modeled on a, a meaning of, of a man of experience and integrity. So the original word for prude is actually a compliment. But it's been switched around now to be a negative thing in our culture. And I share this with you so that when you are called a prude or any derivative thereof, take it as affirmation rather than simply insult. Peter says, when they malign you, keep an eternal perspective. In verse 5, this is exactly what he says. Because though they malign you, he says, verse 5, but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They can live the way they want to. They can say the things they want to say. But one day, they will have to give account for the way that they're living. I found it interesting recently in the USA Today weekend magazine, actor Bruce Willis offered his personal opinion on the morality that the church teaches. He said this, quote, Organized religion used to hang the whole thing on one hook. If you don't do these things, if you don't act morally, you're going to burn in hell. Unfortunately, with what we know about science, anyone who thinks at all probably doesn't believe in fire and brimstone anymore. So organized religion has lost that voice to hold up their moral hand. What is the basis by which he's maligning? those of us who believe in a literal hell. He says, we don't think. we got science that proves such and so. you got science that proves such and so. You don't think if you believe what this book says. And yet we find it true in the scriptures and true borne out in history and history, nation after nation, that has forsaken morality and it is only a matter of time until that nation plummets. Even the mighty Roman Empire, if you look historically, fell because of immorality, not because of poor uh, army strategy, stra strategies. The book of Ecclesiastes looks at it this way. Solomon says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. In other words, Solomon says, Go for it. Do whatever you want to do. Have a great time. Enjoy life while you got it. But then he says, Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. He says, Go ahead, do it. But like Peter says, But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, or as the old King James says, the quick and the dead. I like, uh, it reminded me of a story back in, of a farmer in Colorado in the 1940s. Was ready to have chicken for supper, lopped off his chicken's head, his chicken was named Mike, Lop, lopped off Mike's head, and he tried to do it so high 
to save as much of the tasty neck as possible. And Mike didn't die. Of course, you know, there's the normal chicken with the head running around, but Mike didn't die. The next morning, he was still alive, and he was trying to peck at the ground without his head. Really, this is not a fable. This really happened. And so this farmer begins to feed Mike with an eyedropper through his gullet. When the chicken survived a week, this man takes him over to the University of Utah and says, Hey, how come my chicken's alive? And these scientists uh, suppose that, that the chicken had enough of a brain stem left that it could survive, which kind of says what it takes to survive as a chicken as far as brains. <laughs> this chicken made it into the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, made it into some other magazine. I forget what the famous magazine it made it, made it was in but lived for 18 months without a head. 18 months without a head. And it only died because it choked on a kernel of corn in, a, in an Arizona motel. A lot of people are like Mike the Chicken. Truly. And that they live their lives like a chicken with their head cut off. You've got no vision, no direction, not really sure where you're going. You're pecking the ground, but you've got nothing to peck the ground with. Purely impulse, purely instinct, no direction or vision in life. In fact, you have a, a fatal wound, that being sin. And it's just a matter of time till you find that kernel of corn that takes you to the presence of God and you die. How much wiser it is to realize that God has provided a way for all of us who initially were like Mike with our heads cut off. No direction, no vision, living on instinct, and yet so fragile and could die at any moment. How much wiser it is to realize that God has provided a way to escape the judgment. Do you remember back in March in uh, Seattle when they imploded the Kingdome, uh, the Seahawks big stadium up there. I read about that and was particularly amazed at how they took great care to warn everybody about it. Uh, for blocks, people were evacuated. They checked the structure, they checked the structure again to know exactly how it would fall. Uh, they brought in, brought in this professional company that would do a great job on uh, destroying this facility. 25,000 ton building that they were going to implode. And it, the article went on and talked about the incredible extent. You know, they had radios, they had a loudspeaker with the final countdown. They did everything they could to make sure that everybody was out of the way and would not be damaged by this destruction. But, you know, that is exactly what the Lord God did. He spared no expense. He sent His own Son. He gave all that He could give so that we might be spared the inevitable coming destruction. Peter says in verse 6, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. This doesn't mean that the gospel is preached to dead people, or that after you got die there's a second chance. What it's saying is that those who are now dead, in other words, those who are judged in the flesh, because the gospel was preached to them, even though they are dead, they will live. 
it takes it goes right back to what we saw in the last chapter where it talks about Christ having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. It's the same idea. Even though there's physical death, there is spiritual life because of the good news, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope that you never get tired of hearing the good news uh, because, Lord willing, if we're here another 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to continue to tell it to you. The simple gospel message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And I hope you don't ever get tired of hearing it, even if you've been a Christian 50 years. Because what it ought to do for you is not make you think, oh, yeah, that's great, I've heard that, but how does that relate to me as a believer? What does the whole thing, the whole basis of the New Testament point back to, to a believer? First of all, it says an unbeliever has to come to the cross initially. And then what, what does the New Testament do for you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ? It always points back to the cross as the motivation from which we live a life that honors him. Because remember, just as Peter said, just as Christ also suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Arm yourselves with that same purpose, that you were purposing to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering, and you keep that eternal perspective even, which, even when the world in which you live slanders you. You don't have to look at the past and say, boy, man, that was fun. Yeah, it was wrong, and sometimes you go, man, I wish I could have the pleasure of sin and let that be okay. No. You remember, you were licking the blade at that time. Those were not the good old days. The good old days are now even though they're suffering. These are the good old days. These are the days which we get to enjoy the Lord. No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Let's bow and pray together. Lord, again, we just thank you today that your word points every single person to the cross of Jesus Christ. First, the one who, is, who, if at this moment, would have nothing but a life of good deeds and bad deeds to offer you, and because of those bad deeds, would be justly condemned. Father, I pray that they might, as this lady I spoke with on the phone might, place their faith in you and abandon the good deeds mixed with the bad and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for the believers also present here today, the Bible points us back to the cross, that it might be the sole motivation for our living a life of godliness, that just as Christ suffered in the flesh, so we are to arm ourselves with that same purpose, if suffering is what is necessary to stay faithful. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would come quickly, and until that time, that you would keep us faithful, motivated by your grace in dying for our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Lord bless you.